Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. You're listening to What I Wish I'd Known. Please be advised that in this episode, there are discussions of topics that some listeners may find upsetting. Hello and welcome to What I Wish I'd Known, in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity that provides inspirational speakers and work experience opportunities. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And in this podcast, we talk to extraordinary people who've lived astonishing lives, brushed with displacement, disease, financial ruin, abandonment, bereavement. And not only have they survived, but thrived. Loss and adversity are a part of life, but an imperfect past isn't always an indicator of what's to come. But why is it that often the people with the hardest beginnings in life become the most successful adults? And is there something to learn from these people who perhaps have the strongest sense of what matters most? In this series, we'll be speaking to a collection of remarkable individuals on how they achieved success in the face of adversity. And we'll be reflecting on some of our greatest interviews to date with new thoughts and revelations. Welcome to What I Wish I'd Known. So where are we today, Alice? So in this episode, we are in News UK's headquarters in London Bridge, where we both work, with British politician Michael Gove. And we met him in our vast reception area. He didn't seem that nervous, I think. He's so used to newspapers, having worked there before. And here we are in the, on floor 11. Floor 17. Floor 17. You've had an upgrade. Yes. He's currently serving as Secretary of State for Leveling Up Housing and Communities. He's also Conservative MP for Surrey Heath and previously held positions as Education Secretary, Lord Chancellor, Justice Minister, Minister for the Cabinet Office, Environment Secretary and Government Chief Whip. He seems to have done pretty much everything, but he's never been Chancellor or Prime Minister or Foreign Secretary. But I think that may be because he has a fear of flying, so that would be a difficult position to hold. Have you had any therapy at all? Uh, No. Well, hypnotherapy to deal with my fear of flying. He seems to be very nervous about going on planes, um, but about very little else. He began his career as a journalist after leaving university, working as a reporter for the Press and Journal in Aberdeen, then going into television before becoming a journalist at The Times. He was actually news editor at The Times by the end, so you can imagine it's a bit of a full circle for him being interviewed today by The Times. In fact, in the lift up, we did talk a bit about what it was like because he was at Wapping before we moved to our new gleaming building when it was full of bits of paper and very dusty and old and was really more of a building site, actually. When I joined the Times, it was in the old rum store in the main whopping complex. And then we moved to this slightly newer building, which was just on the highway. But it was still all at whopping when I was at the time. So you never got the shard? I never got the joys of the shard, no. And in politics, he's been the great survivor. He served in the cabinet of every prime minister since 2010, apart from Liz Truss. 
I don't know whether it's good fortune or a curse. Um, <laughs> you can never in politics know how your career is going to take shape because so much of it depends on contingency. There have been different relationships with different prime ministers and different political events that have meant that at different times I've served a purpose for each of them. From being adopted as a young boy and living a loving but modest life in what he refers to as 70s Scotland, Michael has always been aware of his unusual upbringing, especially later in life, I think, when he was surrounded by sort of richer peers at Oxford University. What stayed with you, do you think, since we've talked to Michael? What I found so fascinating is I've always thought of him as a restless reformer. He is this controversial figure and there's lots of things he's done that I don't agree with, but he does want to change things. He's got this phrase about wanting to help the lost boys, the people who sort of fell out of the back of the pram, like in Peter Pan. And I've always wondered whether that's because he sees himself as a lost boy. And what came across in this interview is I think there is a bit of it that he thinks he could have been. I think he very much seems to not have noticed being adopted when he was young. And then it became more and more apparent in his life. And I think by the end, now he's talking to us and reflecting on almost the end of his career it seems to haunt him that he could have had a very, very different life and that he was actually amazingly lucky to have been adopted by two such extraordinary people. He was incredibly honest and reflective. It's really unusual to hear a cabinet minister so open. It's difficult, I think, for any parent to explain to a child when they're different, where that difference comes from. But in, in my mum's case, she wanted to emphasise that this was not something that should be seen as traumatic or you know, concerning or whatever. It's obviously had an, an impact and an influence on me as I've reflected on it I've, you know, throughout life. But at the time, it didn't seem disorientating. In this episode of What I Wish I'd Known, Michael Gove, the politician, writer, father, orphan, tells us his story of how he faced adversity and became one of the longest-serving ministers. Michael began life in Scotland. It's presumed that his birth mother placed him in an orphanage as a tiny baby. And since then, despite being adopted by a loving family, he's carried with him this need to prove himself throughout his life. I wonder if there are at least two ways in which my background has an impact on me. One is, if one is adopted, when you are adopted, there is the sense of gratitude that you have, that someone has chosen you, and so therefore you feel an obligation on some level to prove that they didn't make a mistake, that they're gamble on taking you into their life and the love and care that they invest in you wasn't wasted. So very much in my mind has always been the thought that you need to to demonstrate that you are giving something back or justifying the risks that they took. I think that is definitely one thing. And then the other thing about being adopted is that you're aware of I mentioned chance and contingency earlier. You're aware of how different things might have been. And I think I've mentioned in a different context that if I'd been adopted by a different family at a different point, then the opportunities I might have had in education and elsewhere might never have arisen. Mm. And you were born Graham Andrew Logan yes. in Aberdeen in yes. 1967. And you were adopted by Ernest and Christine Gove. Yes. It's extraordinary in itself just to change your name. Mm. But also, can you remember anything sort of at all from the very early years? Do you remember before you knew you were adopted? No, I don't. No. And in fact, I had always imagined that I'd been born, or I believed, I was told that I'd been born in Edinburgh. My mother, my birth mother, came from Edinburgh. She was a student. She was studying cookery in the hope of becoming a cookery demonstrator in Aberdeen when I was born. And it was only thanks to the work of a guy who was writing a book about me who tracked down my original birth certificate that he established that I was born in Aberdeen. After having been born, 
I was then uh, looked after, I was in care, and the adoption agency that placed me with my mum and dad was based in Edinburgh, so they went down to Edinburgh to collect me. That was when I was four months old. Did you uh, come with anything at all? No, no. They visited Edinburgh, they collected me, took me back to Aberdeen. This was just before Christmas in 1967. I don't remember a thing. My earliest memories are of Aberdeen, my parents, the house that we were living in at the time. It was only when I was older that my mother explained to me the circumstances of my coming to be their son. And what did you feel when she said that? How did she explain it to you? Well, she explained that, unlike other children, that I hadn't been born to them. She had a phrase which, again, I always carry with me, which is that you didn't grow under my heart, you grew in it. And at the time when you're a child, you're aware that there is, you know, there's a difference, but the material, the everyday, the ordinary circumstances of my life were very similar to the other boys and girls in the school that I was attending at the time. So it but wasn't the case that... such a lovely way of describing it. Well, I, again, it's, it's difficult, I think, for any parent to explain to a child when they're different, where that difference comes from. But in, in my mum's case, she wanted to emphasise that this was not something that should be seen as traumatic or, you know, concerning or whatever. And I don't remember feeling uncomfortable about it. It was a fact. Other children, not aware of any others in the in the class I was in at primary school, but other children were adopted as well. And so it's obviously had an, an impact and an influence on me as I've reflected on it live, you know, throughout life. But at the time, it didn't seem disorientating. And what was your house like? Well, the first house that we lived in was essentially a flat, ground floor flat in a terraced street in Aberdeen, number seven Erskine Street. So obviously, my first memories are of the early 1970s. It was warm, comfortable, loving. I remember certain things about it, which now seem unimaginably distant. The fact that we had a bangle in the back garden or in the sort of room towards the back garden for drying clothes before they were then hung out. So it's a different time. Mm. You know, I remember we had a coal fire as well. But it was a very warm and comfortable home, a very loving home. My sister, who was also adopted, Angela, arrived with us when I was five. I remember her being bathed in a metal bath in front of the fire just after she arrived. And we moved when I was about eight or nine to a different house, to a bungalow, semi-detached bungalow, in a different part of Aberdeen, about sort of 10 or 15 minutes walk away from where I'd been. That move, that house move also meant that I moved from one primary school, Sunnybank Primary School in Aberdeen, to another, Kitty Brewster. So was money quite tight? Did you have a sense of things no, being I difficult didn't. or you didn't feel like I that? didn't at all, no. My dad's business ran into difficulties later on in my teenage years. But when I was growing up, no, no. no. Everything was, compared to the other boys and girls in, in my school, you know, broadly equivalent. So I went to primary school with my neighbours in that street and others around, and I don't remember anything. Uh, we didn't go abroad on holiday until I was 11, but I don't think that was particularly atypical for, you know, boys and girls from 70s Scotland. So, no, I don't remember anything that could be regarded as 
discomfort or hardship or anything like that. Not at all. What was the first holiday you went on abroad? The first holiday we went on abroad was to Crete. So I was just before I went to secondary school. It was actually, it was the second time I'd been in a plane. The first time I'd been in a plane was when we went when I was just four to visit my aunt who lives in Detroit in Michigan. So that was actually the first time we went abroad. But this was the first non-family visit, but pure holiday visit. So we went to Crete for a week. I remember the heat more than anything else. On your that, Scottish skin. Exactly. That was the overwhelming sense of it. And also I remember what it was like being able to swim outside. I and mean, obviously in Aberdeen, you're by the coast, swimming in the sea then is quite a challenge. But being able to swim outside in a swimming pool in the place that we were staying, you know, again, I was what, it was 1978 or so, 11 at the time. It wasn't a revolutionary experience, but it was certainly another sort of, what's the word, widening of the horizon. And how Scottish was your family? Did you wear a kilt and have kippers well, for breakfast? <laughs> not all the time. There is a picture of me. When I was four, on the trip to see my auntie in Detroit, I wore the kilt. My mum and dad put me in a little kilt at the time for the journey, which I think was probably calculated, A, to delight my auntie, because she had moved from Scotland to America, and B, to make sure that we got preferential treatment um, on, on the flight. Did you like it? From that moment on, um, until, funnily enough, I was at university, I never wore a kilt. The thing about Aberdeen is it's a city which has its own defined identity. I think anyone who spends, you know, all their formative years in one place will have a particular affection for it. But Aberdeen is a... And indeed the whole northeast of Scotland. It's a place where people tend to be undemonstrative. You know, there, there is a sense of different types of Scottish characteristics. So, you know, on the one hand, there's the sense of garrulousness, hospitality, uh, conviviality. On the other hand, there's an aspect of the Scottish character which is deuce reticent, which is, you know, more reserved. And the northeast of Scotland definitely is the latter. And then Aberdeen is a city of a particular size which has as it were, a city with everything in it. So university, hospital, prison, but also it's a world entire unto itself. And do you think you're more reserved unless you're on the dance floor? Yes. And do you still go clubbing there? Yes, though obviously to the, uh, what's the word, uh, chagrin of my special advisors and the interest of uh, the media. I think I definitely feel more relaxed in Aberdeen than anywhere else because anywhere where you've grown up, where the streets are more familiar, where the you could you could almost be blindfolded and you could find your way back home, feels more reassuring. The other thing also is that when you're there, because home for anyone will have been the place where you will have had your first point, gone to a pub for the first time, gone to a nightclub for the first time, and so on, it feels in a way... Uh, safer there than other places where you will have developed your career or met other friends or enjoyed other experiences. And your father died recently. What yes. impact did that have on you? And did it bring back all kinds of memories and a sense of kind of reconsideration of your childhood? Yes. My dad had been ill for some time. He had adult onset diabetes, then heart trouble. And then in the final year or two of his life, he was increasingly housebound. And in the final couple of months, bedbound. And so as I visited him over that period, I could I could see the deterioration. My mum obviously was living with it every day, but the change was obviously more marked if you'd been away for a month or two and then come back. So I was conscious over the course of the last year or two that, you know, my without knowing when, that my dad's life was drawing to a close. So that inevitably makes you reflect on, you know, mortality and also on 
what you owe to your parents. As many people listening will know, when a friend or a relative is near the end of their life, they can rally hope, you know, comes to you and you're anxious always for any sign from the doctor that uh, they can come home, that they can have another week, month, a number of months when you can spend time with them. I had gone back and I was about to start work at the very beginning of the working year, been in Aberdeen over Christmas, and then got the call on the weekend just before I was due to go back to work when I was um, had just returned to London from the doctor. And it was clear from his tone of voice without him having to spell things out that I, I needed to go back. And I, I I got back on the very first flight that night, but I, I just missed my father dying because I was on, on the plane when he passed away. And I remember when I landed, a message, text message from my sister saying, come to the hospital now. And I, I knew that he would have passed away. And then obviously we'd had conversations beforehand. I'd had conversations with my father. But not being there at that moment leaves you thinking about all the things that you you might additionally have said. Did you get to have any final conversations with him at all? Yes. So again, I talked to my father about, in the run-up to, you know, what's inevitable, all sorts of things about the impact that he'd had on me and how grateful I was to him and to mum. You know, there's always more that you can say. But I, I felt that even though I wasn't there at that moment, that I'd had the chance to talk to him about many of the things that mattered. And did he tell you how proud he was of you? Yes, but the thing that goes back to what I was saying earlier about both, I don't think it's unique to the northeast of Scotland, but for men of a certain age, for Scotsmen of a certain age, showing emotion is not not the thing. There was a, a lack of effusiveness in the way in which my, my father or men of his generation and his background would express themselves. But yes, he was, I remember... Shortly after I got elected as an, MM, an MP, my parents coming down to the House of Commons, it was the day of the Queen's Speech debate, and Tony Blair was opening the Queen's Speech debate for the government, and my parents were able to come along and watch. And I was trying to intervene, I think, on Tony Blair, not so much because I had an important political point to make, but just so that my, my mum and dad could see me asking the Prime Minister a question. So, yes, I, I think they were, but I'm proud of them, because I think that they made real sacrifices in order to help me. Because, again, one of the things that you asked earlier was, was my childhood, you know, in any way financially distressed or uncomfortable? Not at all. But one thing that my parents did do was that they stinted a little on themselves in order to be able to pay school fees to send me to an independent school. So I was at a fee-paying school after the age of 11. They, I know, made, you know, we're not talking about poverty, but they made financial sacrifices in order to make sure that I could benefit from that education. And what was your relationship with your father like when you were growing up? Well, it's always very difficult to characterise a relationship because the intimate relationship that you have with your parents, you're aware of how other people are getting on with their, or not getting on with their mum and dad, (laughs) but you don't have a sort of direct comparison. So I think there were several things. One is that I was, some of my interests were, were, were different. So there's always the cuckoo in the nest phenomenon. There's always the sense that if you don't have the same, I mean, literally the same genetic uh, makeup as uh, other people who are adopting you, how will you alter? How will you differ? And my dad was, uh, when he was younger, a great um, sportsman. He was a, a boxer, boxed for the army. He was a footballer. He had footballing trials and carried on throughout his life loving sport. I am by no means a natural athlete. Anyone who's seen me (laughs) 
try to run will know that. I enjoy watching sport. I would watch football with my dad, but I wasn't by any means, you know, the the, the sporting heir. You know, I'm uh, I wasn't um, Frank Lampard to his Harry Redner by any means. So uh, you know, I but, but what I did have was from a relatively early age. My parents noticed that I was a very keen reader, and both my parents, my mum and dad, would every week take me to the local sort of principal sort of department store, which had a bookshop in it, give me my pocket money, and every week I would buy a new book. And they encouraged and nurtured that. And they also put up with, you know, some of the other things that, some of the other enthusiasms that I pursued, which I'm sure any parent would have known were not necessarily going to be the sustained passions of my life. But, you know, everything from music to drama, they were always willing to indulge me and to support me. And what about your sister, Angela? What was your relationship like with her? Well, the complicating factor was not so much that Angela was adopted and adopted from a different birth mother, but early in Angela's life, my parents noticed that she wasn't responding as as I had, as other children might. And she was then identified as being profoundly deaf, 97% deaf. So the biggest challenge for us as a family was adjusting to that. And that meant both my mother and I and my dad learning sign language as Angela went to primary school. And again, I think you know, we all have different characters and different personalities. And Angela's characteristics are, are different from mine. She's more adventurous in some respects. She lives 20 minutes away from my parents now in, in Aberdeenshire in a uh, town called Kintour. And... We stay in touch. I see her whenever I go back to Aberdeen. We text on WhatsApp and email and message. I hope it's a good relationship. But again, I think there's a difference because she's lived in Scotland all her life. Her her husband and children, obviously, she has three children. Her eldest son's just finished university in Aberdeen. Their life has stayed there. And my life has altered as a result of moving to London working in journalism in London and then working in politics. I remember at your wedding, one mm. of your parents saying that they had two children and one of them was normal and one of them was, I think they almost used the word freak, but it was a sense of that you were so extraordinary and so different and Angela was the normal one. And I thought that yes. was very sweet as a comment. Yes, no, no, no. I think well, Angela is, I mean, normal is, it can both be a term of reassurance and also, you know, certainly it's for a parent, you know, you, all, you know, we all went a normal child, normal childhood. So, yes, I mean, I think the thing is that the fact that you know, for my mum and dad, Angela was growing up in Aberdeen, living near Aberdeen, all the rest of it. And, and the fact that I uh, went on this sort of literal journey, I think made it sort of odder. It was interesting as well, you know, when uh, my sister and her husband were at my wedding. I think they had a great time. But, and what was nice was, you know, I had friends from a variety of different backgrounds. But Angela and Stuart, her husband, got on with everyone, enjoyed it. And did you have a sense when you were growing up that you were different and a bit weird because you were so academic? <laughs> As I've got older, I've been more and more aware of how weird I am. <laughs> you um, didn't realise you were a nerd at school. So I went to, I mentioned earlier, these two primary schools in Aberdeen. And there I I didn't feel particularly as though I was an oddity in that I would, you know, without wanting to romanticise it, play football in the street with my friends and, you know, we'd have the same interests and the same sort of gossip and all the rest of it. But I was identified by one of the primary school teachers, a marvellous woman called Eileen Christie, as potentially having the the academic 
wherewithal to benefit from going to the fee-paying school I went to, Robert Gordon's College. And I was, as I mentioned earlier, a voracious reader. So I was sort of aware that I was more bookish than average. Um, But then when I went to Robert Gordon's, I was in an environment, certainly in the class that I was in, with lots of other specky boys. So (laughs) in that sense, just as I was sort of realising as a kid that I was more academic-y, I then was in an environment that was more academic-y as well. And socially, did you feel different to the other children? Did you feel that you had less money as a family or that your parents had scrimped to get you there and they hadn't? Not dramatically, no. Mm. Um, Later on when I was at school, at Robert Gordon's College, my dad's business went through difficulties. And it was just at that time that I secured a scholarship. There was this particular scholarship that was offered to people midway almost through school, which helped to defray the the fees and, and helped us through that. Again, I was very conscious that there were some families at the school who were leading uh, or whose parents had very comfortable middle-class lives. But the thing is that Aberdeen is not a city of plutocrats. It's a city of, again, the wealth is understated. It's a city where uh, middle-class professionals can have a very comfortable life. But there was nothing about my existence which made me feel as though I was, you know, disadvantaged in any way. You're listening to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson. There'll be more from us just after this. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to What I Wish I'd Known, in association with Speakers for Schools, with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson. Your dad was a fishmonger. Did you ever go and help him out at all? Yes, yes. So my dad's business was started by my grandfather. My grandfather established this business which involved him and then my father going to the fish market in Aberdeen, which was thriving at that time. Trawlers would come in, crates of fish would be unloaded. Uh, There'd be uh, one of those auctions that would be impenetrable to any listener unless they were intimately involved in the business. and understood both the Aberdonian accent and dialect. Then the fish having been bought... Can you give bought, us some of the dialect? Fuzier Alice. <laughs> you had an alpha fine-looking quine. Um, you might have to translate that. Yes, yeah, so that means, <laughs> how are you, Alice? Uh, you're a beautiful young lady. Um, then take the fish, take it to be processed, gutted, smoked, and then sent on to either retail outlets or to the Ross fishes of this world where it would be turned into fish cakes, fish fingers, cod mornay in white sauce or whatever it might be. I did go and I hated it. I'm naturally clumsy. (laughs) 
<laughs> so my first attempt to cut fish involved there being far more of my blood than anything else. And uh, uh, being clumsy and operating in an environment where that clumsiness is exposed and being, as I was at the time, the boss's son, you know, that not conducive to feeling this is a happy environment. So it was a, it was a small business. My dad, yeah, between 14 and 20 people, I think. And again, it was a business that was superseded by by time and by events. So the fishing industry, of course, has been eclipsed in the country, in Scotland in particular. But also when it comes to things like fish processing, it's moved from being the small cottage industry that it was when my grandfather set up the business to something that's obviously carried on in a much more industrial scale now. Did you ever go to sea at all and see what it was like? Oh, yes. And there were bits of it, actually. So I remember going with my dad in the evening. I mean, he would have to get up quite early in the morning in order to be at the harbour as the fish was landed. Then he'd work throughout the day, then come back for the evening meal, tea. Then he would sometimes take me back to his business where they were smoking the fish for, you know, Kipper's Arbour Smokies, for Albert Dispatch. And uh, there'd be a kiln, which was a sort of brickwork kiln with wood shavings that he would set light to. And then the wood shavings would smoke the fish overnight um, as they were hanging on, you know, the various sort of metal poles. And so there was something romantic in a way about aspects of the business. So while it wasn't the case that I ever thought that that would be my future, the fact that this was something that his grandfather had built, this was something that he believed in, and also this was something that was an all-consuming enterprise. There was something touching about that. And when did you decide to go to Oxford? Did you Was there a particular teacher who yes. pushed you? And was that a sense of escaping, if you like, from your background, or was it a sense of just going on an adventure? I was persuaded to apply by my English teacher, a man called Mike Duncan, who went on to become the rector, head teacher of Dundee High School. He was a brilliant English teacher. He identified my potential in that area. There were a group of us in my year who were encouraged to apply. Every year my school tried to send three or four, normally succeeded in getting one or two boys, it was all boys at that time, to Oxford. And I applied alongside a few others. One, a chap called Duncan Gray, also succeeded in reading classics. He went on to work for Channel 4 and became the producer of The Big Breakfast and then a head of light entertainment at ITV. Another, Rupert McNeil, went on to become head of HR at the Cabinet Office, um, where I ended up working with Boris him. Johnson must have been contemporary, <laughs> wasn't he? Yes. Well, well Rupert's moved Scotland. on since then. <laughs> and then I got in to read English at Lady Margaret Hall. Can you and remember the interview at all? Yes, I can. I remember in particular, I was interviewed, the second choice college was Corpus Christi, Oxford. I remember being interviewed by a very fearsome English tutor called Valentine Cunningham. And his first question was, what is Hamlet about? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, it's about a Danish prince. <laughs> and he said, no, wouldn't you say it was about Protestantism? Um, and then so I had to think on my feet. Anyway, I didn't get in there. But I do remember that the person who interviewed me at LMH was a, a very nice man called Nick Shrimpton, who was... Funnily enough, and this may have had something to do with it, one of the few dons at Oxford to believe that Margaret Thatcher should have had an honorary degree in the 1980s. So I remember that the he asked me a series of questions about George Eliot and Middlemarch. And at that time, there was something called the Scottish Scheme, which meant that because we hires and A-levels are different, you could apply on the basis of your hires, i.e. the, the, the sort of fourth time entry in, in, in old-fashioned um, Oxbridge speak. And then on the basis of that and the interview you could get in, that wasn't enough. So I then sat the entrance exam, and I remember getting the telephone call, I think it was just before Christmas, 19, 
1984 and getting in. And I was delighted. And I don't think it was so much a sense of escape as just a sense of adventure. You're right. Most of my contemporaries went on to read law, medicine, and most of them were at universities in Scotland. I had thought initially when I was a boy that I wanted to be a doctor. It was only later that, uh, A, being particularly blood, interested in it? English and history. Hmm? Is it the blood from the, the fish? The blood, no, no, no. <laughs> never got to you that stage. You weren't very good at gutting. It may not no, be a no, good may have been. <laughs> It's just not as well idea. I never became a yeah. surgeon. That is certainly true. But it was a mixture of actually loving English and history and, and wanting to study those subjects that really impelled me. The other thing that I really enjoyed at school was debating. And so that was also a component. And the teacher whom I mentioned earlier, who encouraged me to apply for Oxford, was also the teacher who was in charge of the debating society. Were you already quite right-wing or not? No. When I was 16, or thereabouts, just before actually, we had a school election mirroring the 1983 election. And I was a Labour candidate. I came bottom. But I was a member of the Labour Party. You could join the Labour Party at 16 at that point. I was a member of the Labour Party for a year in 1983. So you, at Oxford, you got in with quite a posh set. Was that deliberate? You know, why was that? Well, I think that the range of friends that I had at Oxford was diverse, I think it's probably fair to say, <laughs> but not necessarily in the way that it might be used now. So there, there were some people who were our friends who came from, you know, quite privileged backgrounds. I'm not suggesting dukes and earls, but relatively privileged. But it was also the case that there were uh, friends of mine from, you know, with whom I was studying English and with whom I had sort of, you know, political conversations and so on, who came from from different backgrounds. So I don't want to ruin anyone's career, but one of my friends' stocks was Gary Gibbon. And, you know, he, he came from, if anything, a sort of similar background to mine. He, he was born in northwest London, went to a fee-paying school after the age of 11, but there was nothing sort of, you know, grand about his background. Another friend of mine from the same time, Anthony Fries, was, again, from Glasgow, but not from a, a you know, a, a, a stellar background, but also, you know, around at the same time, though I didn't know him at the time, was David Cameron. Also around at the same time, though I did know him, was Boris Johnson. And did you want to be um, in the Bullingdon Club or not? No, you... I was not interested in the Bullingdon Club. And why not? It seemed unimaginably distant. To be fair, I was less aware of its existence when I was a student than I was aware of the existence of another equally, what's the word, uh, controversial student organisation, the Piers Gaveston Society. Anyway, there were all of these student organisations that seemed to be, you know, essentially devoted entirely to self-indulgence. <laughs> I wouldn't say that I was a stranger to self-indulgence when I was a student, but the things that I was more interested in, debating, getting to know the world, political discussion and all the rest of it. I, mean, I don't want to give the impression that I was somehow some sort of ascetic Bertrand Russell figure. Absolutely not. <laughs> But it was also the case that these things were happening at the periphery of most students' experience of Oxford. Can you remember the first time you met Boris Johnson? I can. Everyone who wanted to join the Oxford Union, or every college rather, took uh, its undergraduates round so they could see the facilities. Did they want to take part? Blah. And I remember in the bar of the Oxford Union, Boris was there. He was one of the people, he'd, he'd been a senior figure in the Oxford Union, he was running for president. He was one of the people there to explain to the freshers, what was involved. So I remember the, the shock of blonde hair. As far as I remember, he was wearing a sports jacket, chinos, and penny loafers. Um, <laughs> and I also remember chatting to him briefly about politics, and he explained that he was a Tory. And I said, what sort of Tory are you? And he said, I'm a green Conservative. 
And what about drugs? Do you think politicians should be able to be more honest about that? Did you take them at Oxford? Or- yes, well, I, I did. I think there was fierce interest. In fact, I know there was fierce interest, obviously, at the time. First of all, William Hague, or rather Anne Widdicombe, saying that the penalty for drug taking should be higher when, when William was leader. And then there was fierce interest when David Cameron was running for Conservative leader because it reflected, both things reflected generational change. I can't remember who it was who used the phrase whether it was Tony Blair or Keir Starmer or someone, about a normal undergraduate or a normal student experience. I wouldn't want to normalise drug taking, but I think that quite the opposite, actually. But I think that it was a feature of the student experience for a lot of people. I think, again, without wanting to sort of get too much into the policy of it, I think that the type of cannabis marijuana that is available now will often have a far higher... THC content a far higher capacity to to cause harm. I'm not suggesting it was all right in our day and it's bad now. What you're saying is you didn't get very high. No. Well, you didn't uh, inhale very much. No. <laughs> but the other thing also is that I think that the evidence about the link between smoking too much or ingesting cannabinoids too heavily and mental illness and psychosis and so on is more pronounced. These are difficult areas for any politician because you don't want to be accused of hypocrisy. But I think you do need to be honest about some of the risks that young people, in fact, anyone can face now. Were your parents religious or were they sort of more moral? Or what, what was my, the sense? My mother is religious. Mm. Uh, she is a regular attendee at the Church of Scotland. My father was not religious. I would think that insofar as I imbibed a morality from them, it was more from their example than anything else. So uh, my dad, again... Both my parents were not showy people, but as I look back on it, and in particular as I look back on my dad's life towards the end, I realised that to, an, to a significant extent he'd lived for others. Uh, he didn't necessarily want to take on my f- grandfather's business. He was quite a talented artist, and he was thinking, I know, obviously long before I was born, about whether or not he should do it, but he decided that he should out of a sense of duty to my my grandfather, and also because for some time two of his siblings worked in the business as well. And then... Both my mum and dad's decision to adopt me and Angela, the fact that my mum and dad, you know, took steps to support me at school and made sacrifices for themselves. I realised now, I think I sort of instinctively realised it throughout, but I particularly realised it later on, that they had, again, I don't want to suggest they were martyrs, they had fun in life. My mum still does. But they, they were thinking of others constantly. And so that example weighs with me. And did you ever try to find your birth mother or would you? Or would that feel like almost a betrayal of your adoptive mother? I've always found it difficult because I'm naturally nosy. (laughs) And journalist, by the Exactly. But I've also felt that, even though my mum had said it it, it wouldn't be an issue, I've always felt that trying to trace my birth mother would make it seem to my mum as though there was somehow something missing in our relationship. Funnily enough, just the other day, I came across a copy of a book by Polly Toynbee in which she writes about the experience of different people finding their birth parents. I haven't read it yet, but I do also remember the radio presenter, Nicky Campbell, who's written himself about his search for his birth mother, saying that it was something that he felt when we were chatting about, he's adopted, of course, that was the right thing to do, but I haven't ever felt able to do it, actually, no. Are you surprised your birth mother hasn't tried to find you? There are rules that govern the type of contact that any birth mother or birth parent can have with an adopted child. So I think that this is one of the sort of great difficulties because 
if you are giving up a child for adoption, you're acknowledging that while you may know about aspects of their future life, you can't make contact with them. And that is obviously incredibly difficult. And do genetics matter, do you think? I mean, when you look at it now, do you feel you've got a lot of your parents' traits in you? Well, they must matter. And I think the balance between the things that you adopt from your parents and the things that are there as a result of the DNA and the genetics, you know, you can't know. You know, most scientists would say that nature is more important than nurture, that the DNA dictates so much of it. Obviously, it dictates hair colour, eye colour, everything. But I don't think I would be the person that I am, for good or ill, if it hadn't been for my mum and dad and the love they gave and the example they set and those parts of me that are different, there's a curiosity. And, of course, the curiosity is magnified in looking at my own children now. Yes, do you see things in them that you think might have come from your birth parents? Possibly, possibly. So um, both of them are sporty. My daughter, every father will say this, my daughter is much more good-looking than you'd expect any daughter of Michael Gove to be. <laughs> She's got lots of beautiful aspects from my ex-wife, but you you wonder sometimes about it. So, uh, yes, and my, my son, Will, is energetic, athletic, and, again, you wonder where that comes from. So, to be fair, his grandfather, on uh, Sarah's father, was very sporty when he was younger. Do you know who your birth father was? No, I know nothing about nothing my birth all. father. All I know is that my birth mother, as I say, was trained to be a cookery demonstrator in Aberdeen mm. when I was born. That's more or less it. And did you have any sense, or have you ever had any sense of abandonment? So you spoke about your gratitude mm. towards your adopted parents. Is there any sense of abandonment? Well, or not consciously, sadness? but unconsciously there must be. There are certain traits that children who have been adopted apparently manifest later. Mm. And these traits are uh, not unique to children who've been adopted, but it comes back to attachment. So... I was thinking about it because my son's currently doing his psychology A-level. And we were discussing this in the context of the fact that Bowlby, the father of attachment theory, is one of the you know people he's had to mug up on. The physical relationship between a mother and child in the first few weeks and months matters a huge amount. And without that, there is something missing. Now, the impact can be minimal or maximal. But what it does mean is there can sometimes subsequently be, on the one hand, because of that lack of attachment, because of that primal, early feeling of of rejection, that means that there can subsequently be a later fear of commitment. Because if you, um, and, and this is all in the subconscious, this is all there not quite in the academic literature, but generally, if you've had that original early feeling of abandonment, then you worry about throwing all of yourself into something later because of the fear that if you make a, a, a total commitment, that you'll face abandonment or rejection again. And do you think you did have a fear of rejection? Well, I, again, I, it's, you can't psychoanalyse yourself. So, Have you had any therapy at all? Uh, no. Well, hypnotherapy to deal with my fear of flying. But it is an open question because I don't know the extent to which all of my manifold character defects are down to things that happened very early in my life or you know, other extraneous factors as well. I find it fascinating, but I also find it very difficult to exercise objective judgment about myself because... You need to be a professional. 
you need to be a professional psychotherapist or someone steeped in the in the literature to be able to disentangle all of the different influences and impacts that may bear on why someone is the way they are. What about your politics? Because I think it's mm. really fascinating. All the way through, you've been passionate about the lost boys. Yes. So at education, then at justice, now levelling up. Is that because you are sort of a lost boy at one level in your mind, consciously or subconsciously? It's because I was very much aware that I could have been. So I don't consider myself to be a lost boy. But I do think that I remember when I was shadow education spokesman, looking at a school in Liverpool in Speak where only one child got five good GCSEs in the whole of that year. And I know it might seem like a sort of odd thing to do, but the distance of that school from Edinburgh, I think, was the distance of Aberdeen to Edinburgh. So I just thought, you know, if my life had literally taken a different course, that might have been the environment that I ended up. What would it have been like in that environment? Similarly, if I had, hadn't had loving parents, what would it have been like growing up in an environment where you have to put up with neglect or abuse or you're you're seeing your parents not just rowing, but, you know, with, with domestic violence. And you know that those things can have a scarring effect and that you can have people who've got amazing potential who, because of those circumstances early in life, are almost predetermined to go off the rails. And so in my mind was the thought that I had been lucky that intervention can transform people's lives and that if you... Uh, if we do the right things as a society, then the, the, the potential of so many more people can be fulfilled. But more to the point, the misery that they face and which can sometimes be visited on others as a result of their falling through the cracks, that misery can be alleviated or prevented. And do you think it's helped that you feel to a certain extent an outsider and you feel slightly different rather than part of the establishment and part of the Bullingdon Club? Almost everyone would say that they feel, almost everyone who's in politics says they feel an outsider to an extent. Even though he would never say it, I don't think he has, Boris feels himself a bit of an outsider, but to the outside world, it would seem as though, you know, Eton, Bailey, all, all the rest of it, would give him quintessential insider criteria. You know? But he also had quite a traumatic childhood. Oh, he did. His mother yes. was in a, a psychiatric institution. Exactly. In many ways, you were more privileged well, in a sense, uh, because uh, you had had the happy childhood. Uh, yes, I, mean, I, I, I was going to say that I think, again, only an expert can know how all of these things occur, but it's clearly the case that it must have had an impact on Boris when his mum, who he clearly loved, was, uh, as you say, undergoing treatment for mental ill health at a very early stage in his life. On me, on the question of me, I feel privileged now, exceptionally privileged. I think that there are always perspectives that one can bring to bear by being slightly athwart or at some distance from other groups. There was a lot of talk when I was um, in David Cameron's government about the Notting Hill set. And I think that it was unfair um, because it was an attempt to homogenise the experience of different people. And you both know and have seen David Cameron and George Osborne operating. And even though they were, they are friends and a formidable political alliance, they're different. In what way, do you think? George is more quicksilver, urban, in some respects more European. You know, he is the sort of person who has everything from his taste for opera and indeed Bodnot through to... The, the nature of his conversation. You know, one of the people he reminds me of in a way is sort of George Weidenfeld. You know, he's got this range and depth of interest, but also the speed and mischief as well. David is a much more, uh, what's the word? Uh, well, even though he was a modernizer, he's much more of a traditionalist. 
So he's he's someone who is much more happier in a rural environment. I'm not suggesting that he's a hayseed, but uh, he's someone who exudes less nervous energy than George. He has a calmness in demeanor that makes you think of, you know, the heroes of traditional English novels and so on. So there is a difference there. And I'm trying to think, you know, which would be the author who would who would sum them up best. But all of that is a way of saying that within that group, and there were people with whom I worked and with whom I was friends, maybe there was a, a I'm sure there was a difference of experience because without wanting to indulge in this sort of ridiculous hierarchy of privilege where, you know, you get points, negative points for this or that. I think just having a slightly different experience to some of those there, and indeed a slightly different experience to some of the people around the cabinet table today, means that you 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 bring something to the conversation. But You're more Dickensian in some ways, aren't you? It's more of an you know, extraordinary story. I don't know. But is that also why you're a reformer, do you think? Because you are the most sort of restless reformer, probably, in the Conservative Party. Do you think that's why? Because it is this sense of creative destruction. You've got to do something. Y- yes, I do think that. You, you, you can't hang around. You've got to try to make a difference. You've got to try to make a positive difference. Different people will have different swings. So David Cameron had a very strong sense of public service, and I remember him talking about his mum's role as a magistrate. And and the various different people throughout his extended family who've always believed in public service, who believe that with the, you know, the, the good fortune that you can have in life, that there is something to give back. So I don't think it's you know, you know, unique to any particular background. However, as we mentioned earlier, the belief that care and love invested in my early life means that I have a responsibility to demonstrate that if I'm in a position to make a difference, that I, I use the time that I have to make a difference. It is, you should do rather than be. And the night of the Grenville Tower, you lived very close to it, mm. didn't you? Did that have a huge impact on you as well? Yes, it did, yes. So I'd just been put back into government, but I used to live just around the corner from it. A couple of days after the fire, I went to visit the site and was horrified. The more that I learned about the circumstances which led up to the fire, they, the angrier I became about what happened. What at first seemed like a terrible tragedy is clear now was a crime. And, uh, again, because the head teacher at the school, Mr. Fector, was someone with whom I'd worked in the past, because my uh, son went to a school where some of the families of who lived in Grenfell sent their own children, uh, it brought it closer. And do you feel frustrated that you've had to abandon the housing targets? And there is, there is a danger, isn't there? A lot of MPs feel that the Tories are just going to alienate a whole generation over housing. Yes, I think that the, the argument over housing has been, I think, not in the Times, but elsewhere oversimplified. So we haven't abandoned targets per se. I think that we have a range of reforms that will mean that we actually do build the houses the, the, the next generation needs. What, behind the back of the NIMBY... Yeah, well, uh, yes, I, mean, I, 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 I don't like for a variety of reasons. I don't like the, to use the phrase NIMBY. But the thing that I would say is the education, the environment, housing. So these are some of the policy areas where I've had the most time to wrestle with. They're all systems, by which I mean that you, there is not a simple lever that you can pull and then suddenly change comes. So in education, it was a combination of academies and free schools and more autonomy, a systematic synthetic phonics and assessment and Teach First and Ofsted and a new curriculum together that drove things forward. In the environment, it's not simply a matter of 
targets. It's also a matter of uh, the right subsidies for people who are doing the right thing. The creation of different types of landscape, which provide an opportunity for regeneration to occur. And in housing, it's not just targets. It's also making sure that new homes are beautiful. You've got the infrastructure that you need, that people feel they've got democratic control over it. It's entirely understandable because politics is conflict and journalism is conflict as theatre that people will try to say it's NIMBYs versus the next generation. But my own view is that while I I recognise those tensions, I don't think that's the best way of characterising the debate. But you may be best remembered really for stabbing Boris Johnson in the back and basically which side you took on Brexit. Mm. That will be the the future questions asked mm. by A-level politics students. Sure. So how do you feel about that now? Do you think you made the right decisions around that? Yes. I often turn over in my mind, you know, the, the, the different choices. I still very firmly believe that it was the right decision to support Brexit. The events that followed in 2016, I've written about and talked about, and it's entirely understandable because it was a moment of high drama in British politics. So I can completely understand why people are interested in it. One thing that's interesting is that it was the theorising that went on at the time and subsequently. I think that the best thing now is history to make its judgment, both about Brexit and about Boris. And I've explained to the best of my ability broadly why I took the decisions that I did. And then, you know, people can look back and and reflect on whether or not that was wrong, premature, unfair, however they might wish to characterise it. You said that Boris cannot provide the leadership, but you basically were completely vindicated, weren't you, by his time as Prime Minister? I will always say that historians should decide that because I served alongside Boris uh, almost all the time that he was Prime Minister. So I'm as complicit as anyone in those... You know, those years, that the things that we got right and the things that didn't go so right, you know, I should bear responsibility. So I don't think I should criticise Boris over that. I, I want to remember the good things about everything that he achieved, as everyone knows. And you want him back? No, well, I think we've got the right person to be Prime Minister now. So, again, you know, Boris was a formidable, is a formidable person in so many ways. And there were some things that he achieved resolving the Brexit on pass. You know, the sheer ball of energy that he was during the pandemic. And, you know, we wouldn't have been uh, world leaders in vaccination had it not been for him. And then also, you know, you don't need me, Vladimir Zelensky will point out that, that Boris was the staunchest ally that Ukraine had at its most perilous moment. So in any assessment of Boris, I hope that people will take a rounded picture. And again, Lyndon Crosby always told us when uh, we were going into election campaigns, you are participants, not commentators. And other people are well-equipped to to pass judgment. Maybe one day when I'm no longer in active politics, I can reflect and try and pass judgment, including on myself. But for the meantime, what I have to do is be conscious that others will pass judgment. I've got to do. And it had a huge personal impact on you, both Mm. Brexit and that whole period, Mm. as you say, high drama, and your marriage split, and Mm. quite a lot of your friendships broke up. Mm. What was that like? Was it worth it, do you think, in the end? Well, I I don't think that politicians should ever ask anyone for sympathy on the basis of the decisions that they've taken. We have to own the consequences of that. And again, when it comes to friendships and relationships, there is never a single cause. Politics has a pulverising impact on families and it can also place friendships under very great strain. Uh, And that's why when I see some other politicians 
being attacked, including politicians and other parties, I do feel a sense of sympathy for them because I think that they're facing, in some respects, an unfair level of pressure. And, and those putting them at under, under that pressure don't always realise what the impact might be on others. But as I say, I believe that the decisions that I made, particularly on Brexit, were right for this country. The, the ramifications on, on a personal level are things that I have to bear and it would be wrong to, you know, ask anyone for sympathy. Did you feel guilty, though, in a way that your parents gave up so much and then your children have had to sacrifice quite a lot and your marriage? Do you, do you feel in a way that, I mean, it sounds awful, but in a way it has been a lot about you? Uh, well, it's very difficult if you're any sort of politician mm. and, and there are other jobs and roles where you can, um, for your family, have them drawn into, you know, whatever drama you were involved in. One should always try to protect others to an extent. And I think in my children's case, again, you know, I, I want to safeguard and protect their privacy, but I think it's also the case that they've emerged as very happy and robust and wonderful people. I and mean, that's far more to do with Sarah than me. But you can never really know the extent to which any of the challenges that those around you face are down to... Uh, wholly down to the decisions you've made or down to a sort of extraneous other factors. And again, it's not for me to judge how other people react to me, but what I would always want to do is to make sure that any criticism that was directed at me didn't bear on those close to me because I've made these decisions for myself. The Tory MP Danny Kruger said recently that marriage between men and women was the only possible basis for a safe and successful mm. society. Do you agree with him or do you worry that the Tories are getting dragged into American-style culture wars? I don't quite agree with Danny on that. I know what he was driving at. I mean, Danny's a friend and I've got a lot of time and uh, respect for him and his point of view. But I wouldn't take that view because I think that it doesn't reflect the reality of how so many of us live our lives. But no, I don't think so. I mean, we're, we're not American and we never will be. Um, and so it, it will always be the case that politicians and others will debate questions which touch on sensitive matters. There will always be an argument, even if it's reduced to dry technicalities, about what the state should do through the tax benefit system to support particular types of family organisation. And people will bring to those debates their own perspectives and judgments about what's right for individuals and society. I dislike it when an idea is put forward and someone says, oh, you're trying to stoke culture wars here or you're trying to import um, American values there. I think we owe uh, the idea and the person putting it forward the respect of looking at it on its own merits. I mean, I, mean, I, you know, I can understand why sometimes particular initiatives are depicted in that way, but I think it's part of respect for others is respecting the sincerity with which they put forward their views and then if you disagree, disagreeing agreeably. You used to say you'd be deeply unsuited to being Prime Minister, but yes. you're one of the very few ministers who's actually achieved a great amount and done a lot, and particularly education and justice, that, that you've got a very good track record. Mm. Why do you still feel that? Well, I, I think you know, the moment's passed, if it, if it ever ever really existed. And having seen how Rishi's handling being Prime Minister and having seen some of the things up with which he has had to put, I'm, I'm glad it's him, not me. Could you have done a better job than Liz Truss, do you think? Well, Long pause. No, I think, you know, again, in the end, I, I, I felt the choice between Rishi and Liz was, you know, it was better for Rishi to be Prime Minister than Liz, and, and that's how it turned out. And do you still feel like an outsider, even though you're in the Cabinet and you've been Lord Chancellor, multiple Secretaries yes. of State? 
Um, I think it would be preposterous for me to say that I was some sort of desperate outcast who suddenly finds themselves around the cabinet table by accident. But I don't think any of us sitting around the cabinet table ever feel, gosh, this is natural, this is where I should be, I'm entirely at home. Almost anyone in politics, almost anyone, will feel at certain points a variety of imposter syndrome or will feel, look, if I get things wrong, and I'm entirely capable of doing so, then I could be out of my ear. So I certainly think that some of my experiences bring a slightly different perspective, but I wouldn't say that I would characterise myself now as an outsider. No, I think I think that would be testing people's patience a bit. What will you most miss about not being in the Cabinet? Well, making a difference. So the big privilege of politics is not, you know, getting a seat at the coronation, you know, amazing though it is. The big privilege is being able to make a difference. And so uh, whether you're a constituency member of parliament and you know that with the casework that you're doing or the campaigning that you do, that someone's life can be made better, or if you are fortunate enough to be a minister, let alone to be in the cabinet, knowing that you can enact change that is beneficial, that's a wonderful feeling. So Again, I've freely admitted um, that uh, I have made mistakes and got things wrong. But every so often, as last week when the international league tables on reading came out and England was the best performing country in the Western world, just behind Russia, if you can believe Russia, uh, Singapore and Hong Kong, it was an amazing feeling. You know, that didn't happen because just because of me, it uh, happened even more because of what our teachers are doing and what my friend Nick Gibb was doing. I mean, he's the real hero of it. But to have been part of the team that was responsible for taking English schools from a lowly position in the international league tables to near the top, that's a great feeling. It's a great feeling because, not just because, hey, you know, we're number four. It's a great feeling because children are enjoying opportunities that they didn't before. Looking back to yourself at primary school, mm. loving reading, yes. what do you wish you'd known then that you know now about life? Hmm. It's difficult for anyone to have, as it were, a privileged glimpse into the future or a privileged glimpse into how to live their lives. You have to make your own mistakes and learn from them. I can't distill a particular lesson culled from experience that you could transplant into the mind of a youngster that wasn't going to be learnt through experience. I think the one thing that I probably would have said is to my younger self, particularly at university, you'll never have an opportunity to, or very unlikely to have an opportunity, to have as much time in the presence of great minds as this. So do go to lectures, do take advantage of the, the presence of the academics and your own subject and others. So, you know, we are all now listening, in fact, at the moment we're taking part in, but we are all now listening to podcasts. We are all now following Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook or whoever it might be. And that's because there's still this restless thirst to have someone to communicate new information and new knowledge in a way that is accessible and informative and entertaining. And to have had, as we did at university, your own mini versions of Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook in so many areas and not to have taken advantage of that. I think that's probably the thing that I would have told my younger self to do. You've been listening to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity that provides inspirational talks and work experience opportunities with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson and our guest this week, Michael Gove. The series producer is Anya Pierce. If you enjoyed what you heard, why not pick up a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young? Or you can follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. 
And of course, you can listen back to all our previous episodes on the Free Times Radio app or download them from wherever else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. 